0: My name is Nadeem al-Haq and as you know, we do webinar very regularly karte, to bring to you the best of academics that we can find from all the social science fields to learn as much about Pakistan as we can. So today I'm very proud, very honored to present Aisha Jalal to you. I don't think Aisha needs an introduction. She is one of the foremost historians of Pakistan. She has done sterling work, starting off with a uh, famous book, uh, um, yes, Jinnah, the sole spokesman, then going on to the state of martial rule, and uh, then uh, the struggle for Pakistan, and in between many other papers and books, etc. Uh, too long to continue, but Aisha is a professor at Tufts University. But she's also, I must say, um, many people probably don't uh, know about this in Pakistan. She's also the winner of the famous MacArthur Award, which is probably one of the highest honors that anybody could get. I think she's the only Pakistani to have got it so far. Shazia
1: has it too. Shazia Sikander has it as well. Oh,
0: really? Okay. Okay. Great. I must I must applaud her on that. That's wonderful. That's great. They so
1: got it after me. After, yes.
0: And yeah, I thought I, I didn't know about her. But of course I know her. And that's wonderful. Absolutely wonderful to hear that. It's great when you hear something like that about a Pakistani. I think we all feel honored. We all feel that we belong to the club. So that's a wonderful feeling to have. So Aisha has kindly consented to talk to us about the past in Pakistan's future we are And I think <laughs> सोचते सोचते We are sick of seeing too many interesting news or too much interesting news come from Pakistan, especially news of conflict. So I think it's a wonderful opportunity what is it in our history that seems to have a seed in our history that somehow we can't seem to find stability. We can't seem to find a political uh, peace. And we can't seem to find that glue that stitches us together. Now, of course, Aisha has written two or three books on this. And I'm going to ask her to summarize very briefly what she thinks about this. And then we'll go into a conversation on that. So Aisha, over to you. Thank you.
1: Thank you, thank you very much, Nadim, for inviting me, and uh, especially to the organizers of BIDE. Uh, uh, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, how much time do we have altogether, Nadim?
0: Altogether, we'll aim for about one and a half hours. So okay. you know, we well, can I go a little over too.
1: Plenty of time for question and answers. Absolutely. absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, the presence of the past uh, in Pakistan's present, uh, and by extension, uh, its future, is, I think an unexceptional, non-debatable fact, uh, even if assessing uh, that past's actual impact uh, remains a matter of considerable contention and controversy. A primary reason uh, for the failure to meaningfully gauge how the past influences the present, and therefore the future, is the undermining of history, in my view, uh, as a discipline and its replacement uh, by ideology, however you might wish to construe that. Uh, This is not to suggest that the past in its entirety is equivalent to history, uh, which of necessity is selective uh, in what it documents and seeks to explain. But I think without an understanding of history, it is not possible to nurture a historical consciousness among people, uh, with the result that the past remains dangerously open to appropriation and manipulation uh, in the interest of conflicting Uh, political agendas. Uh, This is especially so in the post-truth world that we live in, where alternative facts are more often than not pitted against established ones to gain political mileage um, and score points over political opponents. In these circumstances, uh, different readings of the past fitted to suit one's own perspective and self-interest uh, in the here and now, uh, will not just impact the past. Uh, sorry, the impact the future, but more um, more to the point, can uh, lead in some situations to a completely reimagined past. What then becomes of the future when presentist conceptions of the past, motivated by personal or political self-interest, replace the methods uh, needed for historical retrieval? Uh, then the future cannot but be seriously imperiled. One has only uh, to look at the present political situation in Pakistan to see why the past um, uh, held hostage to the present can endanger how we think about and strive towards the future. Um, There are innumerable examples of such misuses of the past in the present, uh, but let me not strain memories and use a recent example. A few days ago, um, uh, former Prime Minister Imran Khan lashed out at his successor, calling him Amir Jafar and Amir Sadiq quintessential Quislings um, who betrayed Sirajud Dola and Tipu Sultan respectively uh, by conspiring with the English East India Company, thereby changing the course of subcontinental history. As uh, Dr. Mubarak Ali uh, reminded Pakistanis in his repartee, there is a world of difference between loyalty uh, in a personalized form of government, uh, such as existed in Bengal and Mysore uh, in the mid to late 18th century, and in a modern nation state. To rail against political opponents by calling them Mir Jafar or Mir Sadiq is to conflict personalized loyalty um, with uh, to a ruler with impersonalized loyalty uh, to the nation state. Uh, politicians the world over change loyalties uh, to political parties, to causes if you like, but this is a far cry from, 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 from dubbing them traitors to the nation. Uh, I will desist uh, from commenting on the mantra of catching thieves uh, in our midst since in uh, keeping with the past trends, this has turned out to be a ploy not to hold anyone accountable as such, but to make them politically compliant. I'll leave comments on the present sorry state of Pakistan's economy and how much uh, this is because of politics of the recent or distant past to those better qualified like Nadeem, Um, uh, and others at the Pakistan Institute of Development Economics. I'll confine myself to the historian stuff. Uh, Since uh, misuses of the past for political advantage in the present are unlikely to change anytime soon, I think it's important to be alert to the very real dangers this poses for our conceptions of the political and how that relates to the future. Given the limitations of time and the very vast nature of the subject, Um, And in the interest of, really, of a more interactive exchange, I will be confining myself uh, to three uh, interrelated themes. Uh, First, um, uh, the continuous sort of issue of mistaking the causes of Pakistan's creation uh, and attributing them exclusively uh, uh, to issues related to religion uh, or religious differences in the subcontinent broadly defined rather than class and ideologically based regional dynamics. Secondly, the perennial issue of civil military relations uh, in the post-colonial period uh, in a shifting context of global politics. And three, uh, the alarming closing of the national mind uh, through a denial of critical thinking and the cultivation of habits of uh, constructing more and more unlikely and improbable mistruths uh, that serve the moment uh, they are uttered, uh, but undercut the way we apprehend and prepare for the future. It's commonplace to say uh, in line with the official narratives uh, in Pakistan that the country was created in the name of Islam. But what exactly does that mean? That the Muslims of India wanted to live their lives in accordance with uh, their conception of their religion and cultural traditions without let or hindrance from any is beyond dispute. But does that extend to an endorsement of a theocratic state uh, ruled by the clerics of Islam? Evidently not, uh, if we are to take account of positions taken by uh, leaders of Pakistan, beginning with Jinnah, uh, going on to Liaquat Ali Khan, including uh, Ayub Khan, onwards to Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. At the same time, it's impossible to deny that Islam has been deployed uh, since the creation of this country to uh, contain, uh, if not reject, um, uh, what we call provincialism, often derogatively referred to as parochialism, Uh, in contrast to the supposedly more expansive notions uh, and ennobling notions, it would seem, of centralized state power. Yet the simplistic choice between religion and secularism, uh, which is incorrectly uh, defined as or irreligiosity, papers over far too many fissures to produce a stable corrective um, in the form of uh, an official national narrative that the citizenry can embrace Uh, small wonder then that confusion abounds, uh, especially over identity. What what are we first? Are we Muslim first? Are we Pakistanis first? Instead of the multiple social uh, identities that Muslims of this part of the world are blessed with, uh, the official discourse demands privileging a singular religious identity as defined by the state. An interpretive community uh, with proliferating sects, especially uh, during the British colonial period uh, in India, Muslims have disagreed over understandings of Islam far more than is conceded by the votaries of an Islami Tahad. You might ask, then why did you write about terms, concepts like Islamic universalism, or even for that matter, Muslim uh, nationalism, if Muslims have been divided? Now, my uses of Islamic universalism, uh, ever since uh, the publication of my book, Uh, self and sovereignty, individual and community uh, in South Asian Islam uh, since 1850 are discursive rather than based on my reading and understanding of the existential reality. The term is a substitute for the rather more politically wrought British colonial notion of pan-Islamism. In addition to challenging the false uh, universalizing claims of European enlightenment, I mean, European universalism uh, is being, uh, I mean, is being contested here uh, with positing concepts like Islamic universalism, or even for that matter, Asian universalism in some quarters. The idea of Islamic universalism appealed to a cross-section of Muslims in the subcontinent, not only because it invoked connectivities with a worldwide Muslim ummah, a welcome corrective to their minority status uh, in India, but also because of its anti-colonial connotations. But the discursive appeal of Islamic universalism was conspicuously absent when it came to practical everyday life, rituals, and politics of Muslims. For instance, uh, in 1921, Abul Azad tried desperately making a bid for the coveted position of what was called Amir-e-Hind, Uh, an attempt to become the authoritative uh, uh, individual who would speak on behalf of Muslims and Islam. He was rebuffed by some of his closest associates who feared the consequences of enthroning him as a veritable dictator. As a shrewd observer uh, at the time noted, uh, the very term Amir-e-Hind was alien to Indian Muslims. Uh, Those um, claiming The Islamic mantle were organized along sectarian lines and so bitterly opposed to one another as to want nothing less than the excommunication of their rivals from the Muslim community. There were just far too many sectarian and ideological divisions to say nothing of um, regional and class differences among Muslims to allow for the emergence of a single leader or even an institution deriving authority and legitimacy exclusively from Islam. These basic lessons of Muslim social organization and politics in the subcontinent were forgotten in the headiness of independence from colonial subjugation and the stern challenges posed by the post-colonial transition. Where no single Muslim leader could command authority over the entire community, the post-colonial state could hardly be expected to do so without furthering divisiveness and conflict. Now, This is exactly what did happen. Uh, But the Pakistani state, to be fair, is not alone among modern nation states to get increasingly entangled with disputes um, among its sectarian-based citizenry on interpretations of Islamic tenets and more contentiously on who constitutes a Muslim. To put it simply, uh, for purposes of the argument here, the efforts of the post-colonial state of Pakistan to monopolize the discourse on Islam has inadvertently Fuel sectarian and ideological conflicts, further fragmenting the Muslim community. How did a doctrinally and politically fractured Muslim community end up creating a homeland of its own? It's a good question. Certainly not on account of demonstrations of religious solidarity, uh, the insistence on which is one of the foundational fictions of the post-colonial state of Pakistan. So what were the primary factors that led to partition? Uh, of of the partition of India, leaving 45 million Muslims in predominantly Hindu India, the largest Muslim minority in a non-Muslim state. Now, I've written extensively uh, on the subject and so will confine myself uh, uh, to repeating just the bare bones argument here. Uh, From 1937 onwards, Muhammad Ali Jinnah at the helm of uh, the All India Muslim League had invoked the Muslim political category to demand equitable if not equal representation with the Hindu majority. To contest the Indian National Congress's bid for power at the center based on the notion of monolithic sovereignty introduced by the British, Jinnah and also the League came forward with a scheme that drew upon the idea of shared sovereignty. Such a conception of sovereignty was in line with the subcontinent's long history of creative power-sharing arrangements among its diverse peoples and regions. Distinguishing between a nation and a state and a partition of India, as opposed to a partition of the two main Muslim-majority provinces, Punjab and Bengal, helps to unravel the contradictory dynamics uh, underpinning the demand uh, for a Pakistan, while claiming undivided Punjab and Bengal for Pakistan after the passage of the Lahore Resolution um, in March 1940, Jinnah had left it open, an open question, uh, whether the Muslim state uh, would arrive at a confederal arrangement with the rest of India, which he consistently referred to as Hindustan, not India, or make treaty arrangements um, as two separate sovereign states on matters of common concern. In the end, of course, uh, instead of an equitable uh, power-sharing arrangement between the Muslim provinces, uh, uh, i.e. Pakistan and Hindustan, China was offered an unenviable choice, an undivided India with no assurance of the Muslim share of power at the center or a sovereign Pakistan devoid of the non-Muslim majority districts of Punjab and Bengal. China's preoccupations with the all-India arrangements uh, sank the prospect of a power-sharing arrangement that might have saved Punjab from being rent in twain, Um, uh, but there were some prospects in Bengal remaining united. Bengal without Calcutta, Jinnah quipped, was like asking a man to live without his heart. Uh, It was much better, he said, uh, for Bengal to remain united, Uh, and I'm sure they'd be on very good relations with us. Um, Of course, the Congress uh, put an end to that uh, effort. Uh, noting that uh, a united Bengal could only remain within the parameters of India. Uh, The fundamental structural contradiction in the British Indian political system uh, between all India concerns and regional dynamics ultimately defeated Jinnah against the backdrop of mounting tensions along lines of religious community and brutal acts of violence in different parts of India, but most notably in Punjab. Um, um, which uh, I think Jinnah's detractors uh, unfairly blamed on on him, Uh, he was in no position to extract concessions from the Congress. Uh, Bluntly told by the Viceroy that his recalcitrance would lose him the Pakistan on offer, Jinnah very reluctantly acquiesced uh, to Mountbatten's plan uh, for a partition involving an agonizing dismemberment of Punjab and also Bengal. Partition, as it came about, did not entail the division of India as Jinnah had wanted into two successor states, Pakistan and Hindustan. It was Congress that inherited British India's unitary center. Pakistan consisted of the Muslim-majority provinces shown of eastern Punjab uh, and western Bengal, including Calcutta, the mutilated and moth-eaten state that Jinnah had rejected, not just in 1944, but then again um, uh, uh, at the time of the Cabinet Mission Plan. Pakistan without its non-Muslim majorities in Punjab and Bengal was in no position to negotiate safeguards for Muslims in the rest of India. Congress insisted on partition as a final settlement, arguing that the Muslim areas were to be seen as contracting out of the Union of India. This put paid to the Indian Muslim nation uh, using the grant of independent statehood to its collective advantage. Moreover, Uh, If Pakistan collapsed under the weight of its own contradictions, its constituent units would have to return to the Indian Union singly on their own, one by one, not recreated uh, on the basis of two sovereign states. So Jinnah's decision, I mean, here uh, to become the governor general of the new state was intended to forestall such a development. But with millions dislocated as a result of partition and the killing of hundreds of thousands of innocent men, women, and children that followed in its wake, the prospects of Pakistan surviving the trauma of its blood-stained birth looked extremely bleak, cast against his will into the role of the seceding state and with Muslim provincialism rather than presumed unities um, of a common religion providing a major driving force for its creation, Pakistan's main priority, understandably, was to create a viable central authority over two geographically Uh, separated territories uh, that until then had been governed from Delhi. As I've argued uh, ever since the publication of my second book, uh, The State of Martial Rule, uh, the origins of Pakistan's political economy of defense, the uses made of Islam in the newly created Muslim homeland to undermine the imperatives of the country's federal configuration, have played a direct role uh, in tilting the balance. They did so early on uh, balance from elected institutions, uh, such as political parties, uh, parliament, uh, to non-elected institutions like the military uh, and uh, the bureaucracy. Here, the politics of the Cold War played a very crucial role in facilitating the shift away from politicians uh, and political parties um, with senior bureaucrats and military officials beginning to call the shots, um, which is uh, also the second major theme around which this talk is organized. Implicit in my assessment uh, of the evidence is that the political system, far from breaking down on account of internal fissures and contradictions, had to be broken down ultimately to enable the military to exercise unfettered control over what was fast becoming a security state. Tensions with India, combined with international pressures, led to a situation um, where. Uh, the the, the imperatives of state construction were in direct contradiction to those of political processes that might lead to a democratic dispensation. Here, the nexus um, between the top echelons of the military and the civil bureaucracy and the centers of global capitalism uh, located in London and Washington was of tremendous significance. Um, Far from stepping into a power vacuum, as is often suggested, uh, the military um, 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 senior civil and military officials manipulated the international connections uh, to depoliticize, quote unquote, Pakistani society before it slipped into the era of mass mobilization. This, of course, happened in 1958. But the shift from non elected to, uh, so from elected to non elected institutions in the first decade, uh, which the military intervention sought to confirm in 58, uh, has been impossible to overturn. Uh, we've tried controlled politics, we've tried populism, outright authoritarianism, and perhaps most disconcertingly uh, for uh, many of us, even the present uh, much-wanted uh, party-based system of parliamentary democracy. Um, the breakaway of the eastern wing containing the majority of the country's population and 71 and the emergence of Bangladesh is either attributed to Indian machinations, the inadequate uses of Islam, or a basic incompatibility between uh, the two wings of the country. What is ignored is the exclusive emphasis on centre-region contradictions um, in the disintegration of Jinnah's Pakistan. Um, and what is especially ignored is the critical role that the civil-military equation played in this regard. We frequently hear uh, that it was, uh, it was it was uh, uh, it was Rahman who wanted to break this country up or India's machinations, but we never really tried to understand the dynamics of the civil-military civil equation uh, in the breakup of Pakistan. By emphasizing the links between the center and the localities, uh, Ayub's a basic democracy system had sought to undermine provincial politics. Uh, not, no amount of gerrymandering or ideological manipulations, however, could alter the fundamental regional basis of politics in Pakistan. Um, something that has become even more uh, highlighted after the 18th Amendment. Uh, far from diluting the strength of provincial feelings, a decade of basic democracies under tight administrative control um, had heightened demands for provincial autonomy from an unrepresentative and overweening center. Yaya Khan and his top generals, while agreeing to hold elections on the basis of adult franchise, were strongly averse to transferring power to any political group. Uh, from the Eastern or the Western wing of the country, which aimed at circumscribing the interests or reducing the dominance of the military and the bureaucracy. Um, So, I mean, the point really here that I'm trying to make is that even though there's been an attempt to suggest that it was the politicians and notably Sufiqar Ali Bhutto, what is constantly underplayed here is the role of uh, the, the, the military institution in not wishing to transfer power Uh, So I think the emphasis on center uh, center region in regard in in, in studies of breakup of Pakistan needs to be um, uh, uh, sort of uh, further advanced by looking at the civil military relation. Uh, So I think that is a very important issue uh, because the decisive role of the civil military balance in the outcome uh, can teach us a great deal um, about our current predicament, most notably um, vis-a-vis Balochistan. Uh, the problem there as in East Pakistan uh, uh, was not the religious deficit as is erroneously believed by certain quarters or even due mainly to Indian um, uh, interference uh, but because of the, its treatment, its consistent treatment as a strategic asset rather than a political constituents of Pakistan's federation. Devolving authority, as some uh, uh, wise uh, individuals suggested to local levels in places like Baluchistan and elsewhere, cannot resolve the center region problem stemming from the denial of political and financial powers by a military-dominated state. One of the primary lessons of 47 and of 71 is the need to give constituent units like Baluchistan a stake in the federal level to adjust apportionment of state resources and the abandonment of policies and tactics that are akin to treating them as colonized territories, not component units of the nation state. Now, without accounting for the requirements of its federal configuration and a judicious rebalancing of civil-military relations, Pakistan's future will remain uncertain, ensuring the continuation of the chronic instability that has been its fate since uh, it joined the Committee of Nations. What are the prospects then of correcting course and embarking upon a healthier and more robust relationship between the federal center and the component units? This brings me to the final theme of today's talk, the narrowing of the national mind through a denial of critical thinking uh, uh, and and the cultivation of habits of constructing more and more improbable mistruths that may serve the moment they are uttered but undercut the way we apprehend and prepare for the future. Despite a well-orchestrated official nationalism, Pakistan ever since its creation has been groping for mooring somewhere in the twilight zone between myth and history. Uh, This is not a novel occurrence to be sure in a newly independent state, but it has due to declining uh, educational standards, a controlled media, notwithstanding its more recent commercialization has led to the dissemination of some remarkable distortions and mistruths. Extended periods of military and quasi-military rule witnessed severe restrictions on the freedom of expression. The press was muzzled, is muzzled, and bribed into subservience. History has been reduced by official hacks to a jumble of cliches in attempts to expound more and more improbable truths about Pakistan's uh, much-doubted Islamic ideology. Forced to imbibe truths of uh, of officialdom, the vast majority of uh, Pakistan's lit citizens have opted for the comforts of ignorance, habits of skepticism, and most troubling of all, in the contagion of belief in conspiracy theories. By devaluing history for political and ideological reasons, Pakistan has found it difficult to project a national identity that can strike a chord with its heterogeneous people. 75 years since the winning of independence, uh, Pakistan is struggling to define the inner, and outer contours of its national identity. The dilemma flows, I think, from a stubborn refusal to accept the more awkward truths about the historical circumstances surrounding the country's birth. Habits of national denial have assumed crisis proportion today when Pakistan's existence is under far more serious threat from fellow Muslims than it was in 1947 from rival non-Muslim communities. Yet remarkably enough, Well into the 70s, Pakistan had remained a relatively open-minded and moderate Muslim state, uh, despite an emphasis on its Islamic identity and distinctiveness from Hindu India. For all their inadequacies and sins of omission, government sanctioned history textbooks for schools and colleges, and I can vouch for that because I studied here as a, I mean, class five, six, seven, uh, included sections on Pakistan's pre-Islamic history. Although selective in their coverage and devoid of the interpretive quality expected of quality history teaching, they were reasonably accurate and relatively immune from the brazen bigotry that became standard fare for the national curriculum after the 1980s. The ideological onslaught in the name of Islam initiated by General Ziaul Haq and continued by his devoted heirs in the political fraternity at nurtured, proved deadly for the teaching and dissemination of history. already compromised educational system with only a perfunctory commitment to historical research and critical analysis was dismantled bit by bit and newfangled doctrines of Islamization orchestrated by the state uh, became the criteria for all subsequent discussions of Pakistan's history and by, um, by implication also the future. Instead of celebrating the diversities and claims Uh, of sacrifices for its freedom, the official handlers of Pakistan's ideology uh, came to view regional counter-narratives of identity as grave threats to the integrity of the state. Zia's state sponsored Islamization from the late 70s, matched by um, uh, suspension of democratic processes, heightened tensions between center and region. Far from being the proverbial glue, uh, Islam became a source of divisiveness uh, and widespread social corrosion, and perhaps one of the greater paradoxes of the uses of Islam in uh, post-colonial Pakistan. The reference point for the more radicalized in the non-Punjabi provinces was soon no longer the 1973 constitution, but the Muslim League's 1940 resolution with its confederal overtones promising maximum autonomy and sovereignty to the constituent units of the proposed state. And today, when Pakistan seems to be on the boil, I mean, is on the boil and seems to be really uh, hitting rock bottom, uh, we again hear uh, a great deal uh, about constituent units taking on the federal center, uh, uh, trends which can only uh, hurt Pakistan uh, seriously and and something that needs to be addressed very urgently. Insofar as nations are imagined communities uh, that are limited but sovereign. The imagined antiquity of the Pakistani nation and its constructed myths cannot wish away its embedded divisions and the chronic tensions um, um, of its modern present. Instead of chasing mirages on a murky horizon, I think Pakistanis may be better served if they are taught how to delve into the depths of their own history, understand that history with the kind of open-mindedness and spirit of free thinking inquiry uh, that is the basis of all real understanding. It's perhaps only then that this troubled country of 200 million plus can begin shedding its curious penchant for myths, delusions and conspiracies day in and day out of season. A return to the basic of history um, uh, as a methodology that promotes investigation. I mean, history means to investigate um, based on actual evidence, not contrived ideological gildings. Uh, can, I think, facilitate a critical understanding of the past and allow Pakistanis uh, to try and navigate their difficult present, not simply in the light of times gone by, but more importantly, in pursuit of a future that is consistent with their ideals and aspirations. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Aisha. That was a beautiful overview of most of your work. Um, I know, by leaving out a lot of detail, but still very interesting, very informative. Oh, the first thought that I have in mind, Aisha, which I think I'd, I would like you to address is why is it that in Pakistan, economics as a narrative has never survived?
1: Sorry,
2: seven.
0: Sorry, economics, a, we've never developed an economic narrative in Pakistan. We have been so involved in Islam and identity and the military, civil, uh, controversies and the political controversies. The one thing that I find missing in Pakistani narrative altogether is the economics of Pakistan. For example, very simple, we have been uh, a country that has used the most fund programs. That means we've been the, in the international emergency ward most of our lives. Every five years, we have a deep debt crisis and we go. To the fund again and again. Even now, if you look at this situation where the politics is absolutely taking over the economic crisis in the country, the country is teetering on the, teetering on the brink of a default and no political party seems to want to discuss this that issue at all. Why is it that we are a, a community or a country that just does not seek, seem to want economic advancement? I actually, Think that I would
1: slightly uh, frame, reframe what you're saying. I think the problem is that we don't have a historical consciousness. I mean, if you if you see the debate, I mean, I don't think economics is not being debated. I, I, where I do think, I think it's a misinformed debate um, on what the causes are because when you discuss economics, the main attempt by political parties and politicians is to blame the previous government or the previous government, not themselves. I mean, you know, not not accounting for the fact that these are cumulative uh, effects uh, and that there is a connection to what, I mean, to what your structural realities are, what you've been able to accomplish. So rather than understand that, uh, it's just bits and pieces. Uh, You take on the question of inflation, uh, the the, the rising prices of of, uh, gas, gasoline, petrol. Uh, So these are issues that are there, but this without understanding, uh, I find it astonishing uh, that politicians prefer to blame uh, each other um, for the the, the plight of Pakistan rather than explain to the people why this plight may have something to do uh, with the structural realities of this country and changing directions of the international economy i mean there's no sort of real attempt i mean even today if you just listen to the to the to, to, to what is being debated uh, in the public um, nobody says that i mean occasionally you hear well the prices have gone up of oil so we need to do something about it but somebody like some I mean, economists need to explain why this is necessary instead it becomes a partisan issue i think that is the fundamental problem You've got to rescue history and economics, uh, I think, from partisanship. So while I focused on history, I do think that it is symptomatic of the way in which social sciences in this country have simply been ignored uh, in favor of what I would say a partisan discourse, Mm
2: -hmm. which is endless.
1: And you really can't do much with that. I mean, if it's all about blaming others and not accepting any responsibility, we're not going to get anywhere
0: with that. We have too many bogeymans in this country, for example, religion is the bogeyman, then we have um, corruption as another bogeyman, but we never seem to address the fundamental problems of the economy. And another thought that comes to mind is, is it possible, we talk about the civil military, um, you know, bureaucracy and the army working together, The one thing that we have done very well, and this goes back to the work of Asimoglu and Robinson, who talk about the fact, these are economists, who talk about the fact that the colonial um, legacy remains steeped in a country where those colonial foundations were strong. And we have in Pakistan, for example, and maybe even India, but Pakistan much more so. I think the civil and military institutions, as well as judicial institutions, are the same institutions that survived, that stretch from the colonial days. Um, the laws remain virtually the same. We have not really reformed the colonial state. Does that play any narrative at all, and, and uh, any I mean role? That,
1: in the... that is a primary
0: problem. But I would like to say that India.
1: Uh, despite its formal democracy, has done much the same. I mean, you only have to compare the laws that India uses, whether it's Section 144 um, to 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 prevent uh, the articulation of dissent. Uh, I mean, across the board, we have similarities. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so, uh, so, 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 so there is. Um, uh, I mean, it's been convenient for for the ruling elite to perpetuate political structures uh, with. Mm-hmm. Ma- minor modifications. I mean, I think the good example is that of the police. Uh, when attempts were made in um, uh, in the 21st century to bring about new laws, uh, they were promptly ditched uh, in favor of the 19th sen- uh, century law. So I think that this, this is something uh, uh, that, um, uh, again, points to a very narrowly defined, politically motivated uh, uh, effort. So these are self-interests uh, mm-hmm. that do not think that I mean, you know, it's convenient to use the institutions of the colonial state that were really there to use coercion. They were extractive. It suits those who have risen to the home to to perpetuate. And because of the democracy deficit in this country, not adequate steps have been taken to to reform and uh, modify uh, these institutions so that they serve the interests of the people better. And I think here the role of the police is crucial. Um, because the police is one of the most important institutions when it comes to civil uh, and civil relations. Uh, and, and, and the fact that we remain uh, wedded to a colonial uh, uh, agenda for the police uh, suggests that all Pakistanis are under suspicion. Uh, we are not a national uh, entity, but we are, we, are, we are somehow suspicious. I mean, the, the police are suspicious of the people. So there is this antagonism uh, that plays itself out at various stages. I think that these are really serious issues that you're pointing
0: to. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me bring in a question from Khaver. Khaver, go ahead.
3: Uh, as Dr. Aisha. Uh, my uh, question uh, pertains to uh, there are some, uh, you know, uh, there is some thought that the partition occurred because of the military, uh, a lot of Muslims uh, army uh, participated in the Second World War, and that was pressure on the uh, Brit- uh, Britishers to give partition. So I would like to hear your uh, comment on it and that legacy has, uh, you know, uh, what is the, uh, now Pakistan the other thing which i would like you to you know uh, throw some light is that uh, uh, that what is pakistan uh, because the indians are now reinventing history they are uh, you know coming out with uh, moving away from delhi and uh, doing some regional studies so uh, do you think that uh, as a country this region if we take pakistan uh, uh, what kind of legacy it is and finally, uh, uh, Dr. Ishtiaq from Stockholm, who has written a book on uh, Jenna, keeps on quoting you a lot. Uh, so can you throw some l- light on his work also? I don't know, ma- maybe I'm going out of uh, the topic. No, well, I mean,
1: I, all I can say is on your first question that, I mean, if you're suggesting that the primary uh, uh, motivation for partition was uh, lay within the army, uh, that's not quite correct. Uh, it's, of course, true that there was a large... Um, uh, proportion of Muslims in the army. Uh, But that was, in fact, I mean, it was Mr. Jinnah's efforts to uh, uh, claim uh, the the Muslim majority provinces of Punjab and Bengal and thereby lay a claim uh, to the large presence of Muslims in the army and his hope for uh, a more equitable relationship with the rest of India that played a role. But it was certainly not the primary dynamic. Uh, Bhutto Saab, of course, uh, is famously I've Quote, uh, quoted him in my book, saying, I, I mean, Struggle for Pakistan, where he says that what role did the army play? The army was more concerned about the division of the um, of, of, of the of the uh, of the silver, the regimental silver, uh, than about the real issues of partition. Now, that may be a bit uh, of, a, of a far-fetched statement, but I think that gives you an indication that the army—it was not the army—that was the cause. As for your second question about what is the legacy of Pakistan, I think. Uh, it is still playing itself out. Uh, I do think that the regions matter very much. The problem that I I tried to emphasize is the relationship between the regions and the center. Um, The center needs to rethink itself. uh, And that's where the civil military question becomes very pertinent because there is a resistance to changing the nature of the center. What you need to understand is that the British ran India as a unitary state that unitary state has served the purposes not just of Pakistan but also of India which is a federal, we are both federal entities and so as I've always said South, I mean India and Pakistan are federal in form and unitary right. in substance. So you need to understand that, that that it is precisely this lack of equity between center and region that has been uh, one of the primary problems. And this refusal to acknowledge that the real politics in this country are federal, federally based, uh, and the insistence on papering it over with uh, improbable uh, ideologies and interpretations of Islam is simply distractive uh, So I think that's a very important question to understand that the issues are federal. Uh, Finally, though, as as far as uh, Mr. Ishtiak Ahmed is concerned, he's written a book uh, uh, to to, uh, to sort of undermine uh, my book, uh, uh, So Spokesman, uh, but I think he fails miserably because he's not doing history. He's doing political science. He goes and quotes uh, 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 bureaucrats uh, who are obviously mouthing uh, variants of the Pakistani official narrative. This is not history. Uh, this is, a, I mean, you can arrive at a hypothesis and say a partition occurred because this is this is this is why it occurred, and not because what Jalal says. Uh, but that's not the way to do history. You have to provide the evidence. Uh, so I would say that I would simply dismiss uh, this attempt by Mr. Kureshi uh, to make an argument. And those who are who are um, sold on it are welcome to uh, buy it. <laughs> that's all I can say. Fair
0: point. Amara. <clears throat> Amara, go ahead.
2: Assalamu uh, Dr. Aishaf. Dr. I have two questions, basically. Uh, my first question is that, ma'am, uh, we can see a clear pattern of religious and in, uh, religion intervening in politics in Pakistan uh, political culture. So is there any way out of uh, getting this vicious cycle? And second is that we always uh, blame military and that early era. Uh, so uh, we can say <coughs> that the, the footprints are uh, relevant till day. Like we can, uh, we can see military way out because this is becoming like a vicious cycle. So can you suggest any way out for a uh, future or for Pakistan political culture Uh, because people fall very easily for populism and populist agenda. So is there any way out? Kindly, ma'am, enlighten me on this? Thank you.
1: Well, I think the only way out is more democracy, not less. Uh, The problem is that uh, the uses of religion, so-called, are are really meant to distract from the real issues of the people. Um, uh, I mean, you know, what's really astonishing is uh, the public debates in Pakistan are really on uh, marginal issues. Uh, these are They are not real issues of, of, of that, 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 that affect the people. Uh, you either have two clans fighting each other out, uh, or you have uh, individual politics. Uh, and in that context, Islam is used, everybody is trying to be more Muslim than the other. Uh, but I think that uh, in large part, it's a question of people not falling prey uh, to this discourse and demanding uh, 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 focus on real issues. Uh, so I think that that is where the problem lies. I mean, Islam has become simply a means to avoid facing up to the really hardcore issues that this country faces. Issues that economists like Nadim would like to foreground uh, and sociologists and historians would like to foreground. So I do think that this, this sort of, uh, uh, it's almost a shortcut Uh, to express your disappointments and grievances, but it is not a solution because these are not religious problems that you have. You have social and economic problems and political problems. So I do think that this inability to call a spade a spade and understand the causes of the problems is at the root of the matter. As for the military, the military's role in managing politics has never ceased in Pakistan. And I think that has to cease. It's good to see that the discourse has come in, but the discourse has to be um, uh, followed by concrete action. Uh, and I think that we are still some way away from the military being, uh, quote unquote, neutral, um, uh, as is currently uh, the desired uh, way forward.
0: Aisha, let me um, ask you a few questions that I, my lay mind kind of raises. One is a question that's st- stuck in my mind from my um, younger days when I had a few sessions with Raja Mahmood And he made a point which uh, I've always wanted to clarify from somebody like you. He said one of the major problems that, that that or differences that lay between India and Pakistan was that the Congress Party was well-developed. It had been around for almost... Uh, maybe 70-80 years before um, independence and it had um, Gandhi was a charismatic leader who had managed to unify the Hindu population so to speak and managed to sell the Hindu mythology. So in a sense Gandhi was the first guy who brought religion into politics. Uh, and But he, then he said that the, the, the Congress because it was well developed had a had depth in terms of intellectual uh, leadership, it had depth, and it had an organizational culture and organizational uh, setup. Whereas Muslim League was a new party, barely, um, you know, I mean, in reality, it it really took off after 1940. And it was really centered around Jinnah with no, uh, no depth to its leadership. How much of a role do you think that played? Because in his mind, he felt that played a deep role in terms of a. Partition, getting the partition, and two also in terms of the political culture that ensued, because Nehru was able to take over and Ambedkar and all those people, um, you know, there were so many people who were able to develop a political culture, whereas Pakistan never had it. Um, it, it how how would you see that thesis?
1: I mean, I I have argued much the same, uh, 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 Naveen, uh in my in my works. Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, that that the Muslim League was underdeveloped, uh, was barely in existence. I don't know what's ringing. Uh, I don't know where, what's ringing. Uh, uh, underdeveloped in the areas that became part of Pakistan and that, that remained a problem. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the lack of political party organization. I went further and attributed this to the granting of separate electorates to Muslims in 1909, which I've also always argued was a Class concession, and not mm-hmm. as um, you are told, uh, a community or religious concession. It was a class concession because number one, uh, the mm-hmm. the franchise was restricted to education and mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, and property uh, qualification and, and, and property, uh, I mean education qualifications and property, and not everyone had uh, the right to vote. So you had a very small electorate. Uh, In Punjab, for instance, only 11% had the right to vote in 1945, uh, the last election before independence. Uh, So so in that context, um, uh, you you, you find that that, that clearly um, some of the the results of the elections were not necessarily representative. I mean, universal adult franchise only came at a later stage. I mean, in in Pakistan's case, it didn't happen until 1970. Uh, In India, it happened in 1952. Uh, So I do think that the relative uh, development of the two parties, I mean, the the, the development of the Congress, which was able, thanks to... uh, I mean, I won't say that Gandhi brought religion into politics. I don't agree with that. I think religion was already in politics. uh, And Gandhi, of course, uh, at a certain stage gave it. uh, Mm. But I think that there is this great uh, misunderstanding that religion is the problem. It's the uses of religion that are the problem. Religion doesn't divide. It's the way that politicians use religion. And I think that Pakistanis would be better served to stop calling the uses that politicians make religion because they're not religion. These are just discursive uses of religion uh, and have nothing to do with your faith or my faith. Uh, So I, I think that that is the great problem is what religion has come to mean. Anybody who talks about Islam somehow becomes a religious uh, leader in the eye. So I think think that is a major problem. It's it's really not religion. Um, But I will say that the absence of political party development and what is more, in the case of Pakistan, frequent um, uh, interventions uh, by the military have played a very crucial role um, uh, in undermining uh, political processes and keeping political parties underdeveloped and allowing um, uh, the, the, the sort of dynasticism that uh, many Pakistanis despise and, and 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 at least verbally despise, uh, but of course Congress too uh, is dynastic. Um, uh, so as so in that sense, I think it's important to realize that the the, the uneven development of political parties has played a crucial role. Mm. But, uh, there's, no, there's no democracy. I mean, there's no democratic elections in, in, in political parties. So I, I do think that, 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 that this, is, this is something that needs to be looked at uh, uh, to understand why we can't sustain democracy in this country, why this constant sort of fears of disruption or even calls there are even people who think we'll be better off if the military comes in, even though you have a history of, sh- of, 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 of uh, knowing that even the military can't solve many of the problems that the country faces. Mm.
0: Now, the corollary of this argument is that um, oh, sorry, related to this, let's, let's, we'll come to the corollary later. Related to this is also the notion that there's a differential intellectual development between the Hindus and the Muslims, um, which, you know, etc. I'm using lay historical term, Don't, don't uh, fault me on that. I don't know enough history, <laughs> but whatever I know, it seems to me that the Hindus, for example, or Hindu, I mean, they developed a deep intellectual dev, uh, class even by the end of the 19th century, whereas Muslims were kind of lagging behind. Now, how how does that impact on our development and the? Developer to the political. Well, I,
1: mean, I, I actually sort of feel that if you look at the the, the the share, I mean, numbers, the the numbers game. I mean, you know, Muslims uh, were. Um, uh, a minority, um, uh, and the Hindus were in a majority. Uh, and I think that even in the case of the Hindus, I think the Bengalis um, uh, took away a good proportion of the intellectual weight. Uh, so I'm not sure that even in in, 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 in in amongst the Hindus, it's as even as might be implied in the comparison between Muslim and Hindu. Um, so I, I, I do think that that is there. But I, I think the deeper problem has been that we have not done our work uh, on those Muslims who uh, in, from the late 19th, I mean from the mid 19th century onwards, contributed enormously uh, to issues uh, that face the Muslim community and for that matter, the Indian uh, nation as a whole. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a lack of historical research. I mean no, we, we focused on appropriating Mr. Jinnah, our Iqbal, but there's not been much done to understand the others. In fact, mm-hmm. my next book uh, is p- trying to uh, redress that and there's a lot more work to be done. Uh, mm-hmm. So to say that there has been no work done and that we have an intellectual deficit, um, uh, I-, I think uh, uh, is it- at one level true and at another level, it ignores the enormous contributions some people have made and uh, about which most of our current generation is largely unaware. Uh, And that has to do with a very, I I think also a kind of a a complex uh, that we are more comfortable reading uh, Western uh, philosophies uh, and explanations than reading what our own people uh, have produced and how they thought. So I do Mm -hmm. think that the sustainability in any nation's thought only comes when you are grounded in your own context. Uh, And I don't suggest that we have to be narrowly Uh, 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 viewing our problems. There there is a dialogical relationship with Western ideas or the ideas anywhere for that matter. But I don't think that we've paid much attention to what people have been doing. There is a tendency to try to reinvent the wheel all the time, ignoring what other people have said in the past. So I Mm -hmm. think it's our own nalaiki, if if I may be allowed to say, uh, rather than any real issue as such. Mm -hmm. Notwithstanding, Uh, as I've said, the differential between Hindus and Muslims in share numbers. Hmm.
0: Hmm. But uh, but, uh, coming to the corollary, um, the search for the constitution. India was able to develop a constitution very quickly. Pakistan was not able to do that. And that was one of the reasons that cited for the military to come in, because these guys dithered and could not find a, find a way to resolve their political differences, much like we are doing today. So in a sense today, history seems to be repeating itself, um, uh, but yet we don't seem to have a constitution. But another question related to this is, both of us copied the 1935 Government of India Act. The constitutions are similar. Absolutely. And in, and,
1: it's a question of not just adopting constitutions. There's no question that Congress was able to, um, um, uh, you know, uh, basically get the constitution accepted very quickly. Uh, Nineteen. I mean, it was it was done very quickly because of of a of a stranglehold over the constituent assembly. In Pakistan's case, the division was on two issues in the main. Uh, one was, of course, the claim by the so-called religious quote unquote lobby. Um, uh, about uh, the, the the ideological Islamic uh, aspects of the country. Um, but more importantly, it was the question of East Pakistan's majority, uh, which a few in West Pakistan wanted to accept. Uh, so, I mean, you know, you, you, you created one unit, uh, you created parity. So I do think that the manipulations and inability, and so the lack of faith in that constitution, even though it's almost identical, To the Indian, so it's not just the adoption of a of a a constitution, but implementation. Uh, In 1973, after great effort, a constitution was adopted. The problem again remained in implementation. So, I mean, you know, constitutions have to be followed. You need to ask the question, not constitutions, but what is it about the Pakistani political culture that makes people um, averse to following constitutions? Constitutions and laws, it seems, as far as the leaders of this country are concerned, are for others, not for them. They're above it. Uh, So I do think that that is the fundamental problem um, uh, rather than anything inherent in uh, the, the absence of constitutionalism. I think it's, it's following that constitution and believing in it. I don't think that there is that belief in Pakistan.
0: So that begs the question, what is it about India that made them? Well, I think India, democracy?
1: at least for all its flaws, uh, um, uh, and I have written about it, democracy and authoritarianism, uh, for all its flaws, uh, did manage to establish a formal democracy, which uh, falls well short of being a substantive democracy. Uh, mm-hmm. But there are some procedural uh, uh, issues that have been accepted. Uh, as you will see from the Shaheen Bagh uh, protests, uh, I mean, against the uh, Citizen uh, Amendment Act, uh, the, the people stuck to the constitution, even though um, I, for one, keep saying that this constitution is a colonial constitution um, uh, and, uh, you know, that that, that that it's not a people's constitution a la Rohit Deh. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, Rohit's book is fabulous, but I think the name is wrong, uh, and he assures me that it wasn't his choice; it's the publisher's. Uh, but so, I mean, you know, the, the point is that these are these are uh, colonial constitutions. They're far from perfect, uh, but India has been able to uh, uh, do better, uh, at least until now. Uh, I think things will unravel. They are unraveling now, uh, but 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 it, it has been because it suited uh, the, the 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 Congress to. Uh, to follow this. In Pakistan's case, we've had military intervention, we've had rewritten constitutions. And so it seems that the main problem is to get a constitution. It's not getting a constitution, it's following one. Mm -hmm. Because people here seem to think that they're above the law. The law is for others, the law is for their opponents, not for them. And I think Mm -hmm. until that culture changes, you're going to get nowhere. Mm
0: -hmm. Abbas Musvi?
4: Musvi? uh am i audible yeah you
0: are
4: yes. uh thank you uh, dr aisha this has been a tremendous conversation appreciate you taking out the time i have two questions um the first is related to education um uh what what are your thoughts on uh, the sort of interventions that we can take in the education system of pakistan um and i'm sure you've been <laughs> following the developments with the single national curriculum and so on perhaps you'd like to comment on the sort of Political economy of education in Pakistan. Um, my second question is about um, the, the idea that um, is it, we talked a little bit about uh, the political culture in Pakistan. Um, what is your idea? Uh, what, is, what are your thoughts on? Um, can I continue?
1: Yes, I, yes, please go ahead. Something's happened. Nadeep, ba- you
4: ma- ma- the, um, okay, my second question Baars, Can to, you hear me?
1: Yes, we
4: can please, hear please, you. We can, we can. Hello? Yes, we can hear you.
0: Okay. Have you asked your question because the light went out here? Go ahead.
4: Yes, um, I'm just on my second question. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Ak- your thoughts on the idea that um, uh, politicians in Pakistan don't exactly have a lot of autonomy, not in the sense that they don't have free will, but in the sense that they seem to be responding to um, a set of incentives that aren't exactly organic, they seem to be imposed externally. Um, uh, perhaps uh, you'd like to comment on like, uh, dependency theory, for instance, Emmanuel Wallerstein, and so on and so forth. So those are my two questions. Thank you so much.
1: Well, I mean, the first question on education, I think I've implied that the education system has been in the door rums for far too long. Um, and the so-called single curriculum, um, uh, I mean, you know, there has been a single curriculum of sorts. Uh, uh, what's different here is an attempt to further uh, move towards what is regarded as Quranic education. Now that's all very well, uh, but I do think that the fundamental problems of Pakistan's—I mean, the Pakistan's educational system—if you compare it with India—is is, is really the real comparative point that India has been able, despite it all, to still produce uh, qualified people. Uh, uh, who are able to take on positions, not just globally, uh, but they can really sort of outpace Pakistan throughout uh, and and within the country as well. Uh, Pakistan's education system has been systematically dismantled um, and reduced to uh, a a sham. Uh, I think that, uh, I mean, if you look at uh, higher education, I mean, I don't even want to go there. Uh, I mean, it is astonishing um, uh, to, 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 to sort of be asked to read uh, dissertations, which I'm sometimes asked to, which are incomprehensible. Um, and I am i mean, maybe uh, we should just abandon the English language and uh, move towards Urdu, because at least maybe people will be able to write in Urdu. They certainly can't express themselves. As it turns out, uh, the majority of people can't express themselves in any language. So, you know, the question that you have to ask is, after 16 years of education in English, why is it that majority of people who come out of the Pakistani public uh, schooling system cannot write a coherent paragraph, can't speak English, and can't think right. So there is something wrong uh, seriously with, obviously it has to do with training of of teachers, uh, but the education system is really um, a a serious problem and for which I blame uh, the rulers of this country, uh, not just recently, but really from the very beginning. Uh, that they have systematically, and I mean, this raises the question whether they really wanted an educated population. Uh, I think that some more honest ones uh, have admitted to me that they don't want educated people because what if what if everybody is educated? Who will do their work for them? Who will they subjugate uh, to, 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 to project their own lifestyle? So I do think that there is something very seriously wrong with the education system and it's getting worse. Um, and the so-called Um, uh, uh, single curriculum uh, will probably move uh, further in the direction uh, of creating that dichotomy uh, that I've pointed out with India, where they're still uh, quite capable people. I mean, at least the private uh, uh, educational system for all its elitism was able to produce a few Pakistanis who were able to um, uh, compete uh, internationally uh, and also contribute uh, domestically. Uh, To Pakistan. So I do think the education system's problems are are, are vast uh, and that not addressing them is a political issue. It is not an issue purely for educationists to sort out. It is intrinsically related to ideology um, uh, as construed by the powers that be. Uh, So I do think that, and and of course, the political economy issue becomes really crucial. The political economy of um, uh, educational reform uh, when you look at textbook boards uh, in the different provinces. Uh, I mean, now with the 18th Amendment, uh, that's what it is. And and those who control these textbook boards want their own sort of views of Pakistan and Islam uh, to be projected. So I do think that this is a very serious problem, uh, which needs to be mitigated by uh, judicious uh, federal intervention. It has to be a balance between uh, the federal and uh, the provincial on the question of the curriculum. Um, As for your point about Pakistanis not being able to be independent agents of the, why is that? Um, it's because of um, uh, compromises made in the past, uh, and having uh, become addicted to aid, quote unquote, or injections of economic flows from outside, um, not being able to, naturally, actually you can't become independent uh, when you do not want to, for instance, again, I'm going to um, uh, trespass on Uh, Nadeem's territory, not expand the tax base. I mean, why do politicians in this country not want to expand the tax base? If you want to be independent, sovereign nation, you need a broader tax base. So I do think, and I mean, not only that, we know that we have done damn all to sort of really um, expand our export bases, uh, exports. So you're living off remittances, you're living off doles, Uh, uh, how can you be independent? How can politicians be independent when their hands are tied? So I do think think that these are questions that you need to address. Uh, It becomes easy to just blame politicians, Um, which is fine if that suits you, but that's really not really answering the real problem.
0: Okay, let me bring in Ankeet Singh. Uh, Thank
5: you, sir. Uh, ma'am, good uh, good evening. Thank you for your discussion. Ma'am, I just want to draw parallel to caste system in India. And uh Sorry. You know, I,
1: I didn't hear that caste system in India. Uh,
5: yes, yes, ma'am. And uh, the way the structured war violence gets imbibed, even though when we claim that you know we are a democracy, we assume that everybody is equal, but that the fact that we are starting from equal is itself not applicable to uh, the subcontinental, you know, sectarian-based communities. So uh is there a, is there a historical insight which you can, you know, provide us, you know, like kind of governance, which was there, which was more suitable app for the, uh, geography of South Asia rather than the current democracy. Also this, uh, just a curiosity, is this more of a philosophical problem, which we suffer from, uh, you know, in providing welfare on the basis of modern line versus our own, uh, civilizational, uh, uh, legacies. Thank you.
1: Ankit, it's a loaded question, uh, but also one that, uh, in my view, relates to the whole question of privilege. Um, You know, I mean, I I live in the US, uh, I see the problem with racism there, with race issues, um, uh, the the question of white privilege. uh, And in the case of India, I think it's a pure and simple question of Brahmanical privilege. Uh, So I think it has been a a long, uh, 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 I mean, it's it's, it's an enduring problem, which had different manifestations in the pre-colonial period. Uh, That's not to say the caste (coughs) was not there, uh, but arguably caste has been considerably rigidified over the years, largely because of colonial assumptions and the conveniences of perpetuating privilege in the post-colonial era. So I wouldn't say that it's a philosophical question alone. Uh, I do think it's an existential one. Um, And it's very deliberate. It's very real. Those with privilege do not want to give it up. Uh, So it is convenient for them to have something like a caste system to justify this continued uh, injustice. Uh, So yes, I think it needs to be fought. uh, But you need to be able to identify the problem uh, and not misinterpret what the real issue is. For that, I think you may need some philosophical uh, 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 understandings of uh, the, the similarity, for instance, between racism and, uh, and caste in India, I think there are innumerable similarities. To that extent, we can even bring the question of underprivilege in Pakistan. Uh, I would simply say that, uh, that, that here in Pakistan, the most striking thing is male privilege. Uh, in India, it's brahmanical privilege and male privilege too. But in Pakistan, it's male privilege pure and simple. Uh, and, and so the question is, what do you do with that? Um, uh, if you need to fight it, uh, but the the, the 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 options and the opportunities have been few and far between uh, when there are no democratic processes for extended periods of time, uh, and the discourse becomes even when there is democracy, there are so many instruments put in place that freedom of speech is um, is, is is constantly dented. Uh, in, in Pakistan's case, there are innumerable laws uh, that prevent
6: freedom of speech today. Hassan Raza. Assalamu alaikum. alaikum, ma'am. It's a privilege to interact with you today. Uh, thanks to the platform of Pakistan Institute of Development Economics. Am I audible, sir? You yes. are, you are. You, you are. Uh, I'm a student of NED University of Engineering and Technology. Uh, ma'am, my question is if we look at our society today, uh, it's highly polarized. Uh, it seems there won't be any strong government in the future if we look uh, the polarization in our society today. The vote bank looks mm-hmm. uh, divided, while at the same time, the trust of the people and democracy also is also continuing to erode. Mm-hmm. In this scenario, ma'am, do you think if there won't be any future, there won't be any stronger government in future, uh, the government won't be able to take stronger measures for mm-hmm. uh, reforms? if. If uh, they are not able to bring liable measures to, uh, uh, to uh, take the country out of the crisis, uh, the the people, the uh, trust of people will be eroded from the democracy. So, how do you see the future of democracy in this country amid this uh, polarized scenario? Thank you.
1: Well, you know, democracy for me, Hassan, is conflict. Hmm. Uh, people who seem to think that democracy is some sort of a wonderful. Uh, unifying entity <laughs> completely misplaced. Uh, so, if democracy is conflict, then you need institutions to moderate those conflicts. Uh, what Pakistanis need to learn is that we will always disagree. We don't have to agree, but we need to have the civility to learn to listen to each other and somehow arrive at some degree of—I um, uh, mean—some degree of agreement. That is, the, that, is, that is human nature. In Pakistan, because of constant um, interruptions of the democratic process, uh, the use of force, uh, people seem to think that blowing the opposition to smithereens is the best way forward. Uh, that's not the way, uh, in my view. And yes, I think Pakistan is in for a long haul of political instability. And the answer really lies with those uh, who want to ra- be in politics. Do they want to blow their other opponents to smithereens uh, uh, through use of force or state power, or do they want to bring them on board to discuss disagreements? No disagreement is so severe that we cannot um, uh, arrive at some degree of compromise. Politics means compromising. Uh, So I think it's this attitude Uh, that has been instilled by constant interruptions of the democratic process. that you can simply destroy your opposition, uh, that is at the root cause of our problems. We need to understand that there has to be uh, 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 some degree of um, uh, uh, ability, uh, some ethical understanding of how we can learn to disagree and yet do work that has to be done in the interests of this country. I mean, if the future of this country is uh, uh, pointing to dismemberment, um, I hear people who say, so what? What have we got from Pakistan? Now well, I think that's really dangerous talk. And if that's where Pakistanis want to go, I don't think that, that, that I mean, without Pakistan, you'll be much worse off. Uh, I'm not saying that you've been very much better off with Pakistan, but you at least can change your mind to try and improve things. For that, you have to realize that people will not agree with you always. Mm. That doesn't mean that you shoot them or you plan to sort of get them incarcerated or have a court case against them. That's the problem here.
0: But actually this 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 sort of brings a question to my mind that um you know I, I recall it's Azaz Astan's book on trying to rationalize the state of Pakistan. Who's whose book? It's Azaz Astan's book, you've probably oh, seen yes. it, right? Um but the, the the it's a good story, but somehow yeah. in this in
1: the
0: Indus story. Indus Indus saga, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, it was a good story, but someone left me... Historically
1: incorrect,
2: I'm
0: afraid. <laughs> right. So so I come back to that, that when, when we talk about India, let's look at the heterogeneity of India, right? I mean, the Bengal and South of India were much more developed than this side of India. We were kind of um, in the shadow of India uh, or shadow of Delhi, I should say. Um, we kind of, I don't know my reading of Uh, It is also the weak history that I have is that apart from Ranjit Singh, Punjab never really achieved any real national movement. Um, And even apart from that, this region kind of remained in the shadow of Delhi. So to that extent, I'm wondering how politically and sociologically was this region developed to be able to take on independence as we did? And is the independence project affected by history? This is a deep question that we have. Do we have a history from tax law onward that kind of gives us continuity to make the independence project work? Or are we trying to build a history? And that's where the search for national identity comes I mean, in. I think, I
1: think that it's a question of how you view the history. I mean, I tend to see the history as regionally based. Uh, and there's no denying that uh, there were certain regions who, quote-unquote, as you put it, were more advanced, quote-unquote, depending on what you're referring to. But Punjab was very advanced when it came to um, agrarian uh, production. Uh, it had a, it had a, a surplus. Uh, and so there were some advantages. Uh, and, 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 and Punjab has also uh, not failed to produce uh, intellect um, uh, equal to, if not better, Uh, than many other parts of India. So I wouldn't sort of make these, uh, the problem has been the way in which we have sought to cohere politics uh, and economics in in the post-independence period. Um, uh, I mean, the the failure of of, of federalism uh, uh, in 1947 led to the creation of Pakistan. People want to argue that it was the failure of, I mean, it was Hindu-Muslim issues, um, but it was actually the failure of federalism. Uh, that led the the failure to arrive at a power-sharing arrangement. And we have persisted in that mode uh, in Pakistan um, uh, with the Punjab emerging as a a very major region um, and and being in conflict with Bengal uh, up to 1971 uh, or being pitted against Bengal. And subsequently then the whole question, it's a regional question. You need to sort of understand that there is, we need to value what's in specific regions not try to eliminate them in the name of a overarching national entity, which is more of a fiction, uh, which is in production. Uh, And I think that rather than fearing uh, those diversities that our uh, state managers tend to do, we need to begin to celebrate them and give the people of this country a stake, not in their localities, but at the federal center, the hope of actually being able to run the country. So I do think that these are more salient issues than some of the rather slippery philosophical questions you're trying to take me into, which I'm going to try and
0: avoid. Fair (laughs) point, fair point. But (laughs) now in, in this case, let's also turn a little bit to India. I think we give India a very easy break. Uh, in the sense I don't. That, I never uh, have. I mean, I've okay, been criticizing
1: it, and <laughs> I mean, I've paid a price for it as well. Uh, since writing, Democracy I saw. I program. remember that.
0: I remember <laughs> that. I remember that. So look, the point is, we in Pakistan tend to self-flagellate a lot and give India a very easy break. If you look at India, for example, if Pakistan has had its military problem, but so has India. If you think about it, India has used its army to colonize a large part of. I mean, you know Princely Always. states.
1: Always not Goa. northeast, don't forget the northeast. I mean, just look yeah. at them northeast. since 47. And but, but Even Sri Lanka, don't forget Sri Lanka. India but India yeah. is massive, and so it has been able to have outright authoritarianism in certain regions like the northeast and Kashmir and Punjab and have a democratically elected government. But I do think that it is also a question of framing. I think that the creation of Pakistan has really helped India because it managed because Pakistan is portrayed in such negative terms, um, uh, its very creation is deemed to be a mistake uh, uh, with the result that India's many, many uh, uh, serious uh, problems with India are simply glossed over. So I do think the framing issue has been very serious. India has real problems which are very comparable to Pakistan. We are not aware of them. All we certainly are so-called liberal intelligentsia. uh, I know they're a bit depressed these days, uh, but uh, they were all gung-ho about India as a secular democracy. We all now know how secular India really is. Uh, So I do think uh, that there is a mistake. There's a question of representation and how we perceive it.
0: Then explain to me another interesting factor. How come we see so little dissent in India and an extreme I think dissent real, in Pakistan?
1: That, that, I think, is the real, the best question. Why is there such dissent? And my own personal view is that I have long believed that democracy of a certain kind, what I call the formal democracy, not a substantive democracy, I think it dulls the mind. Mm-hmm. Whereas authoritarianism makes you uh, 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 suspicious, uh, critical, uh, and unbelieving. Uh, so in India, uh, what, what the state uh, uh, I mean, pro- produces and reproduces for the public, I mean, if you follow the Indian media, which I must say, Pakistanis are very fortunate that they do not get to hear uh, the talk shows, um, mm-hmm. because I think they'll probably just go nuts if they were to hear them. Uh, I mean, they're disastrous. Uh, I mean, it's all, I mean, Pakistan is the cause of all of India's ills, effectively. So that narrative is very, very popular. It has sunk in. So with that narrative, uh, it's very possible to manipulate uh, the populace. There is no disagreement um, and there is no, frankly, no opposition. Uh, I also think that the Congress is doing a fabulous job keeping the BGP in power. Um, so I think that is the, the, the real issue. But if, yeah. you, if you scratch the surface, uh, Nadim, uh, India is in a really, really bad way. Sure. Uh, and sure. the problems are greater uh, in many yeah. ways, I would say, than those of Pakistan. Uh, but right. they are there.
0: Hmm. But you know, getting back to Punjab a little bit. You talked about Punjab as a granary of, of, of the subcontinent, and we are used to thinking of it that way. But was that not a recent phenomenon when the British developed the irrigation system, the Punjab kind of benefited from it, but related to the irrigation system, as, as Imran Lee says in his book, that um, the canal colonies, for example, conferred a huge amount of titles and property, created our wealth class. In fact, if if I I frequently joke about it, there are only three ways that we can call ourselves elite in Pakistan or whatever, the family origins. Either you had a uh, land grant from the Brits, or you had a military position, or you had a civil service position, or you were a canteen trader. There's no other path to greatness. Now, given that this, this, this land grant culture that, that occurred, um, and then on top of that came the refugee culture. The refugees came in the evacuee property. Pakistan still today has a plot culture. And that's why our name, PID's name for Pakistan is Plotistan, because everybody <laughs> is still in plots, right? And this plot culture permeates everything we do in Pakistan. Every university wants a big plot. Every government office wants a big plot. Every government officer wants a house. Every professor wants a house. Every judge wants a house. The DHA you know about, I don't have to preach to you. Explain to me, does that have any relevance in the way we work? Because India being too large again, does not inherit this. We inherit this in a very big way.
1: Well, I I disagree with you. I I Mm -hmm. think that land uh, underpins politics in the subcontinent. It is the primary factor. Uh, so I would uh, um, recommend uh, uh, lots of works to you, but maybe we can do take that separately. Sure. Sure. Um, mm. uh, I mean, Imran's work has been overtaken in some ways now by the works of Niladri Bhattacharya. Okay. Um, my own student Anilam uh, uh, Sahil, has done a very good job on 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 Punjab, and where I mean the main I mean, even Gilmartin shows that. I mean, what Imran calls development, uh, is really social engineering by the British. So this social engineering has been perpetuated in the post-colonial context as part of the question of assigning privilege uh, uh, and thereby getting collaboration. Uh, So I do think that that has to be uh, uh, addressed. So that relationship with land, I don't think is specific to Pakistan. Uh, If you see what the corporatization of land is doing in India today, um, uh, uh, you know, they've been repeated. Uh, uh, I mean, it's an ongoing problem. Uh, mm-hmm. So people are being displaced. Uh, that is the primary issue. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think that that, that the absence of uh, democratic politics in Pakistan or you know, coherent and, and, and effective ones uh, are, are, are probably what makes land even more nefarious uh, in its effects because simply by granting land, you win, you, you win complicity. You, you, uh, I mean, people become complicitous um, in, in, in that design. So land is very crucial. Um, and perhaps I think that um, uh, a, a rethink on land by economists uh, uh, helped by, uh, by, by historians and, uh, and other an anthropologists would be a good idea. I think the land issue is key Uh, And here again, the gendered nature of land distribution is also very important in understanding patriarchal dominance in this
0: country. Hmm. 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 What about about the issue of um, patrimonialism? I mean, Pakistan, the state is heavily, heavily patrimonial. We, the Thana Kuretje Kuchari culture seems to be very, very strong. And the dynastic um, culture that you mentioned, Ali uh, Chima has shown that roughly about two three hundred. We also have a project here that's shown roughly about three four hundred families dominate the parliament, and it's um, and those families stay there because of the fact that uh, this is what the what Imran calls the electables, and those families stay in power because hey all our rights depend on those families. I mean, even if you have a police problem, you go to that family. If you have a, any land dispute or whatever dispute, if you have a murder, you go to that family. I think India is less of that. Again, the size factor helps India. Um, and of course... Not if you look at
1: constituency politics in India. Uh, if you if you study constituency politics in India, you will find um, <clears throat> dynastic aspirations to be as alive um, uh, there uh, as in uh, as in Pakistan, I did tell Ali that there is a problem in using the blanket term dynasticism uh, at the all India level, at the all Pakistan level. And in, because it's it's aspirational because, you know, the, the, this misconception that politics, that elections are about the relationship between the voter and the representative, you know, elections in Pakistan, as I argued in a certain, I mean, in, in, in struggle for Pakistan is, is choreographed. Uh, there's a whole team of people. And so, Clearly, those who can pay for that expensive choreography um, tend to win, and that is dynastic. But what amazes me, and I want to pose the question back to you as an economist, is that we have problems with political dynasticism, but what about capitalistic dynasticism, um, where all the successful capitalists are dynastic? It's the money they inherit. Uh, it's not an equal starting point with, and so those who can inherit tons of money uh, are successful and continue to perpetuate their power. So I do think there are similarities, but the kind of problems we face with politics is absent with capitalistic dynasticism. So maybe you can answer that.
0: No, I think that's a very important question. We have a paper here where we've taken a look at Mahbubul Haq's thesis of 22 families, yeah. which was in 67. That's Today, right. we look at the Pakistan Stock Exchange, we find there are 31 families. And many of them are common. So, so that's a fair, fair point. Wasif Rashid, Saab. Wasif, Wasif Rashid. Okay, Wasif is kind of absent, I think. Amara, last question to you.
2: Uh, thank you, sir, for giving me opportunity again. Thank you so much. Um, my question uh, from Dr. Aisha is that, ma'am, you relate Balochistan with uh, East Pakistan, right? So ma'am, uh, uh, owing to the ethnicity and the resources over there, can you say, uh, can you really expect that uh, a political set- setup can be really installed there? And what do you see the future of Balochistan? like? Can we expect any political uh, party, like the the way they are in other provinces and the way things are in other provinces, people are talking about politics and the development of political culture, but it's other way around totally in Balochistan. So what do you see the future of Balochistan, especially in political
1: uh, terms? Thank you. Well, Amara, uh, I, I, I think that there has been a long standing problem uh, with, the, with, the, with the sort of Sardari system uh, and uh, the, the general populace. Uh, the Pakistani state, following the British model, uh, preferred to do deals with the Sardars who were given the money, uh, which they pocketed. Uh, so, I mean, the problem is that instead of nurturing a middle class, uh, which would be closer to, uh, which would have aspirations tied to the Pakistani state. Uh, The Pakistani state, remarkably enough, has managed to bring the Sardari system and the middle classes together. How do you overturn it? Is there a way? I mean, only clobbering them into submission is no answer. That is what is the East Pakistan uh, 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 example. You need to clearly bring them uh, into the political system. I think that the answer is not just i mean it's good to see um, uh, you know efforts at local body elections uh, it's getting them involved in their own affairs but also then having an adequate share politically and economically at the federal center so that they have a stake in pakistan if you do not give the uh, the baluch a stake in pakistan then the problem will continue to simmer i did say that the main problem has been that we have treated this uh, part of the country uh, containing 40% of our territory as a strategic asset rather than a political constituent unit. And until you do that, there is no solution. I do think it can be sorted out, uh, but the methods that are being deployed currently are completely wrong-headed for that.
0: Aisha, a little bit, a little different question. Reflect on this for a little while and reflect on it using history. We see now in the States, a huge domination of Indian intellectuals. They've kind of taken over most of the academic institutions in the West. Also, there's a huge domination of Indian uh, professional class, entrepreneurial class in the States. If you look at the top 10 companies, their CEOs are Indians right now. Um, And if you look at the um, lobbies in the US, those lobbies are very, very strong. In fact, I just got a paper recently on, on the Indian lobby in, uh, and even the Indian uh, radical Hinduism in, in the States. In, in the states, Given our narrative of, uh, Khan's narrative of anti-America and given how India is moving and how this class is moving in, in, in America, I'd like to reflect on two things. What does this state of the Indian professional in the West Have to do with the historical state of our civil society or differential state of our civil society and intellect? And how will this reflect on us going forward?
1: It's it's the result of those many discrepancies that I was pointing to the the, the, the educational system, Uh, Mm they produced uh, capable people who've been able to, uh, but we must not also ignore uh, the Islamophobia uh, that has played a very crucial role in keeping Competent educated uh, Pakistanis out of uh, key positions. Uh, so I do think that there is a bias um, uh, uh, in the US. Uh, and I don't think that anti-Americanism is an Imran Khan narrative. Uh, it's a Pakistani narrative which precedes him by decades. Uh, it's not novel, it lacks originality, uh, but it's one that has resonance with the people because of long-standing uh, nature. So yes, the Indian lobby is uh, uh, alongside the Israeli lobby uh, uh, in control of the US. Um, but I do think that uh, the, the, the real problem has been, as we've seen, I mean, I've always uh, maintained that the loss of the narrative of Pakistan, um, by I mean, you know, and, and it turns out that this was a, a, a planned, uh, I mean, India planned it for decades uh, to, to sort of malign Pakistan. But I have been shocked by the response from Pakistan. Uh, there's been virtually no response uh, after the discovery by the BBC that this has, been doing, this has been done for years. So I do think that these things perpetuate themselves. I don't deny the takeover of, of many competent uh, Indians uh, in top positions. Some of them are very worthy and not all are uh, haters of Pakistan. Uh, But I do think that we ourselves have really served ourselves very poorly um, uh, in providing a counter narrative. Uh, And I have always believed that if it hadn't been for Pakistan, as I've said it earlier, too, India would look much worse than it does today. So actually, it is Pakistan that carries the weight of those negativities that really should also uh, be, should include India as well. So there is almost a view that Pakistan is the cause of all that is wrong. And that mm. suits India perfectly, and also helps its, um, uh, its um, uh, not, not as citizens, but those with Indian origin to rise up the ladder in a country that is steeped in Islamophobia. Mm.
0: But what, what is it about our politics and our civil society, and our politicians that they can't seem to even our civil society? We can't seem to develop a narrative other than to blame the military. And we or can't. Or to seem blame to, each
1: other, or to blame, or to blame, you blame your report, or to, So, so the, the point is that you are not prepared to accept yes. the yes. realities, the structural realities of Pakistan. I have pointed out that we aspire to have a sovereign independent state of Pakistan with its own policies and yet have no qualms. Uh, b- borrowing money from the IMF and accepting its t- dictations, uh, we have no problems uh, looking for, for foreign uh, infusions uh, and want to be independent. I mean, you know, left-hand car doesn't know the left from the right. That's the problem with Pakistanis, uh, and I think that this is a product of uh, a, a, a certain lack of understanding or unwillingness to understand and um, uh, taking leaps of faith uh, in fantasy. Uh, to explain how Pakistan can be sorted out, I mean, you so have place real
0: the, problems. so place the role of the intellectual and civil society in this. Now, obviously, you are one of the foremost intellectuals in Pakistan. How do you see the intellectual in Pakistan shaping the narrative of Pakistan and trying to kind of give intellectual leadership to the country?
1: They're intellectuals and they're intellectuals. Most of us have, have, have found it impossible to operate in a country like Pakistan, where there's not only a lack of democratic freedoms, uh, but, but serious dangers. So we, we, we I mean, I mean you look at the education institutions. Uh, there are hardly any education institutions where a true a scholarship can be pursued. Uh, I mean, without being uh, interfered by some uh, entity or the other, if not the intelligence agency. So I do think that there is no true genuine uh, inquiry underway. Um, uh, and that sure. is a major problem. And that reflects on uh, those who come into the public uh, uh, arenas, uh, because they too don't want to admit the problems. It's not popular. The, po- the, popul- the population just wants to hear good things. And I think the time has come to sort of really tell some hard truths to the people of Pakistan so that they know uh, uh, that that, that they have to sort of make those hard decisions in order to have a move over. Otherwise, Pakistan is condemned to go on repeating the same old mistakes and will never emerge. Uh, This can carry on for much longer and things will get worse. But unless we break out of this vicious cycle, I don't think there is a future.
0: I have a question here from our young friend, which says that how is your work? How do you see your work as being received in Pakistan? Do you feel that your work is being seen for what it is, understood, appreciated? used? I don't think
1: think it's understood at all. I think there are a handful of people who might have understood it if they have bothered to read it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I do think that there is a younger generation of Pakistanis. There may be a handful. Uh, who I'm trying, I mean, uh, I mean, you, you've talked about my work, but I, I would like when I'm gone, uh, mm-hmm. to be re- remembered, not for my books, but for the graduate students I have worked with, they mm-hmm. are the future. And they are mm-hmm. doing some excellent work. There may not be many, but they will go and plant a 1000
0: flowers. Mm-hmm. Great, wonderful. I have two more questions. Do you have time to take them? Or shall we sure, conclude? Sure, okay. Vasif, Vasif, Rashid, go ahead. Vasif, you got to unmute fast. Go ahead, Wasif.
1: I think Wasif is not there.
0: <laughs> no, talking. he unmutes and he can't be heard. Wasif, what's, here? what's happening to you? I think his mic is not working. Zeeshan okay. Ali Khan. Zeeshan Ali Khan.
1: So I think we might just conclude now,
0: Nadim. Zeeshan Ali Khan. Nope, There's nobody, okay. nobody, nobody, nobody. nobody. thank Nobody's you very there. much aisha this has been wonderful thank Lots you for having great me. Stuff. the puzzles of pakistan continue are well,
1: very tough but i'm glad to have, to have had you as and the you you
0: have at least you have at least opened many uh, sort of bulbs in my mind
1: i can only and try and but the problems many interesting are really great
0: things but but yeah the, the challenges are huge and aisha i tell and you everyone it's interesting at times now, who is that? Wasif? Wasif okay, sir. Quickly, Wasif. Can quickly. I, just one very quick question for Aisha? Mm-hmm. How are you, alaikum, mm-hmm. uh,
3: What I'm saying is since our first dictator, all <laughs> dictators have followed or have tried to reinvent Pakistan in their own
0: image or myths using certain politicians and others to give them a semblance
3: of democratic legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Do you think this has stymied the growth of democracy in Pakistan? as those they have nurtured are now part of the mainstream? And yes, secondly, of course. Of course. And is, secondly, is balkanization of Pakistan now a real threat, considering what you've told us about, Balochistan.
1: Uh, well, I think it has always been a real threat. Um, uh, and I think that uh, it is increasingly so, uh, given the refusal to change course, after so many people have made it clear that these are the, the causes of of. of, of a disintegration, a possible dismemberment. Uh, so I think it's, it's again, uh, bringing back the, the theme for today's talk, which was the past in Pakistan's future. So long as you continue to refuse to accept the lessons of the past, the obvious glaring lessons of the past, the future will remain endangered. And the more we refuse, the closer we head to that disaster.
0: Thank you, Aisha. It has been wonderful. Thanks for giving us the time. Thanks, thanks, Nadeem. All the best. All the best. Khuda hafiz. See
2: you soon.